There are some people who talk and some people who don't, which means that there are some people who leave this place and some who do not leave. You are obviously staying. Has it ever occurred to you that you're just as much a prisoner as I am? Oh, my dear chap, of course, I knew too much. We're both lifers. I am definitely an optimist. That's why it doesn't matter who number one is. It doesn't matter which side runs the village. It's run by one side or the other. Oh, certainly. But both sides are becoming identical. What, in fact, has been created? An international community. A perfect blueprint for world order. When the sides facing each other suddenly realize that they're looking into a mirror, they will see that this is the pattern for the future. The whole earth as the village. Yes. That is my hope. What's yours? I'd like to be the first man on the moon. <laughs> Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. You just heard a clip from one of the greatest Gnostic gospels of modern times. The TV show, The Prisoner. I am not a number, I am a free man. Says it all. Some of us never get out, some of us escape. Some of us play the villain, and some of us play the hero. Most of all, the cosmic game is rigged, and the illusion of two sides against each other dominates most of the psyche of Western man. But it's all part of the satanic divide-and-conquer, circular firing squad spell of the Archons. Left versus right, Republican versus Democrat, Russia versus the USA, Hunter doing coke versus Lauren getting felt up during Beetlejuice. These are all distracting, false dichotomies meant to infuse lasting trauma in that soul killer that is hope. The puppet show looks like our side might win, but in the end, the two hands belong to one entity behind the stage. The WWE match raises our adrenaline and provides dopamine shots, but in the end, it's a choreographed farce meant to take our money, time, and energy. And they haven't given us any other options outside the occasional purely symbolic participatory act of voting. You want the puppet on the right or the puppet on the left? But we all know the function of the media has never been to eliminate the evils of the world. No. Their job is to persuade us to accept those evils and get used to living with them. The powers that be want us to be passive observers. And again, most of humanity has bought into this Gorgon shit. A cosmic punch and Judy show. Hey, I'm on the side of Ben Shapiro and you're on the side of the Young Turks. Hey, I'm on the side of Trump while you're on the side of Biden. And hey, I wonder why the planet is dying, the middle class erodes, the poor keep getting poorer, and the collective psyche collapses like a Mr. Bean baked souffle. I should vote harder then. I should switch sides then. I should post more often then. Utopia's just around the corner. This time my government and big corporations will do the right thing. You gotta tell them, Silent Green is people! Ah, what a shit show. And here we are, 
At the end of human civilization in this age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world and Gnostic times. Here we are. But you are here and you are awake, you of the broken places, yes, shining crazy diamonds. You are awake indeed and you know the game is rigged and you've taken the middle path to the farthest shores of imagination. You are awake, yes, and you are amazing, and you're going to do so many wonders. So honored you are here with me on this dark odyssey. Your host, Miguel Connor. I don't give two fucks, but I am telling you right now, that motherfucker motherfucker back there is not real. Welcome to Aeon Bite. We don't take prisoners, but liberate them. We are not the final authority on anything, but hope to be an endless possibility for everything. You are the final authority, have always been. You're writing your own gospel and living your own myth. I know who I am. After all these years, there's a a victory in that. It seems to me that the dark has a lot more territory. You're looking at her on it. Sky thing. How's that? Well, once there is only dark. Yes, any lights winning. Ready to finally find the Philosopher's Stone? This is the show for this, I say, I say. Get ready for some ball tingling noses, for I have the pleasure of being joined by Richard Kretz, who will be discussing his fantastic new book. The Alchemical Search for the Unified Field, Pythagorean, Hermetic, and Shamanic Journeys into Invisible and Ethereal Realms. Yes, Richard will deliver on all these keywords from his book. And yes, he will reveal the truth about the Philosopher's Stone like no one ever has. I don't want to give any spoilers, but let's just say it's right in front of you right now or should i say within you i remember i am energy not memory not self my name my personality my choices all came after me i was before them and i will be after and everything else is pictures picked up along the way fleeting little dreamlets We need the gnosis of cats like Richard more than ever. Or we won't even be Johnny Cash bodhisattvas or spiritual entrepreneurs. Because the entire human race will be transformed into nothing more than a Cylon, Borg, or zombie colony. We're that close to Yaldibaldi having complete control over the collective consciousness. The sheeple aren't going anywhere. They like my world. They don't want this sentimentality. They don't want freedom or empowerment. They want to be controlled. They crave the comfort of certainty. To show you how low we've come, let me summarize a study from the University of Virginia. Participants were asked to spend time alone in a plane room on the college campus for 6 to 15 minutes. They were instructed to entertain themselves with just their thoughts, without falling asleep or using any distractions. 
The results showed that most participants cringe while spending time alone with their thoughts. They found it difficult to concentrate as their minds wandered, and that the experience was unpleasant. Many said they would pay money to avoid repeating the task. Remarkably, in a follow-up trial, many male participants opted to give themselves mild electric shocks simply to have something to occupy their minds, rather than sit alone thinking. This dramatic choice illustrated just how averse some were to being left alone, devoid of any stimuli. I haven't had this much fun since I was at a nudist colony and accidentally backed into a meat thermometer. Isn't that pathetic? People can't even be with themselves, let alone dare the inner journey. If it were me in that room for 6 to 15 minutes, I'd be excited. I'd do me some meditation, active imagination exercises, healing stretches, or speculate on some philosophic issue or creative endeavor. Mind you, the study was conducted in 2014, so imagine how much worse it is in 2023. Monkey minds unable to deal with monkey thoughts. A little bit about myself. I'm in a polyamorous relationship with two life-size companion dolls. I also do up-close sex magic. I both read and masturbate to tarot. Or as Jung said, people will do anything to avoid facing their souls. They will practice Indian yoga and all its exercises, observe a strict regime of diet, learn the literature of the whole world, all because they cannot get on with themselves and have not the slightest faith that anything useful could come out of their own souls. If people can't control their own emotions, then they have to start trying to control other people's behavior. Oh, you're just being a drama queen, Mikael, says rhetorical NPC on the internet. Sure, bro. That's why 2022 saw more deadly drug overdoses than the Vietnam and Iraq war deaths combined. Or as Josie on Twitter said, what we have is younger generations largely depressed because they eat too much junk, don't work out, seek instant gratification, need constant validation, have no sense of individualism, had parents who weren't present, and take pills for everything. We have a growing civilization of dopamine addicts pumped full of chemicals. What a Kali Yuga mess. You went into a store, an actual honest-to-God store, and you bought something. You didn't ask questions or raise ethical complaints. You, you just looked straight into the bleeding jaws of capitalism and said, Yes, Daddy, please. And I'm so proud of you. I only wish you could have bought more. But what about some solutions, Miguel? Says rhetorical NPC on the internet. I got them, bro. And try them next time you're stuck in a room for 15 minutes. They come from Adrian Smith's excellent presentation on the Demiurge and totalitarianism in our last Finding Hermes meeting. Based on his also excellent book, A Prison for the Mind. Here they are, and I do think they will help thee. Number one, stay connected with intuition and trust it. 
Two, parallel structures. Three, find your tribe. Hang out with biological humans. Four, disconnect. Pull the plug. Cut the ties which bind. Five, get creative. Six, find your purpose. Seven, live according to your highest ideals. Truth, beauty, justice. Eight, preserve the culture. Art, music, literature, poetry, humor. Nine, connect with the ancestors. Ten, integrate opposites. Eleven, question every narrative. Observe the contradictions. Twelve, hear all the alternatives. Thirteen, rise and rise again until lambs become lions. We do not consent. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Well said, Adrian. And Richard will further expand on many of these points in our interview. But what say you, Zendaya, in the show Euphoria, about the Gnostic plight of Zoomers? Let's find out. I was once happy, content, sloshing around in my own private primordial pool. Then one day, for reasons beyond my control, I was repeatedly crushed over and over by the cruel cervix of my mother, Leslie. I put up a good fight, but I lost for the first time, but not the last. And then, without warning, a middle-class childhood in an American suburb. I don't remember much between the ages of 8 and 12. Just that the world moved fast and my brain moved slow. Okay. Until every second of every day you find yourself trying to outrun your anxiety. And quite frankly, I'm just fucking exhausted. I just showed up one day without a map or a compass. And I know it all may seem sad, but guess what? I didn't build this system. Nor did I fuck it up. And then it happens. That moment when your breath starts to slow. And every time you breathe, you breathe out all the oxygen you have. And everything stops. Your heart, your lungs, and finally your brain. And everything you feel and wish and want to forget, it all just sinks. And then suddenly... You give it air again, give it life again. And then over time, that's all I wanted. Those two seconds of nothingness. This is the Aeon Bide interview. And with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Richard Kretz to discuss his book, The Alchemical Search for the Unified Field. Pythagorean, Hermetic, and Shamanic Journeys into Invisible and Ethereal Realms. Richard, thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for the invitation. I greatly look forward to it. Pleasure is all ours. Yeah, I really enjoyed the book so much. And uh, and quite uh, amazing how much you put in so little. So, But we want to unpack your really game-changing research that will help people. Practical, theoretical, philosophical. It's got everything there. But with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? I'm fine. 
And uh, this is an area of interest of mine today, um, alchemy. And I always wondered about the Philosopher's Stone. That seems to be the central quest for the alchemist. So looking forward to learning about that. Well, Richard gives us the dope, that's for sure. But first, let's start with you and your background, Richard. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You come from a a line of Freemasonry, don't you? Uh, That's correct. Uh, Yeah, I've got Masons in my family on both my father and my mother's side. Going back a number of generations. Um, So in concert with that, yeah, there's you know, this natural affinity for the occult uh, that seems to go hand in hand. So I've been familiar with this and and, uh, working with it my entire life. Uh, When I uh, was a freshman in college, I actually pursued transcendental meditation. Uh, So I actually, you know, have been formally trained in that and I still practice it. It's been a tremendous help in my life. Good deal, good deal. And uh, how did you come to write the book? I know in your book you kept uh, asking your uh, brothers over at the lodges and so forth about the deeper questions and this and that, and they they would always come with the answer, well, it's in the right, it's in the right. And you were like, okay, there's got to be something else. Tell us a little bit about this process of going even deeper than what uh, seemed to be provided. Okay, well, uh, to kind of digress for a moment, and then I'll I'll use this as a segue to answer your question, is that, you know, I could give you a canned response and say, oh, yeah, I'm a lot like, uh, you know, Robert Langdon in Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, you know, symbologist, right? So that's one aspect of me. The other aspect is you could say, okay, if you've read Carlos Castaneda, uh, the Aki way of knowledge, for example, and his sorcerer, Don Juan. Yeah, I incorporate that as well. So it appears as though you've got these opposite ideas going on. So what I have tried to do is in this book is to, to blend that together. The Western occultism along with the Native American shamanism. But to directly answer your question, I had a lot of questions when I became a Mason. You know, I had this expectation that, you know, okay, yeah, my family has a background in Masonry, but they didn't talk about it. Not at all. You know, all it was just enough to know, yeah, my father and my grandfathers <laughs> were Masons, but there was no discussion about what the fraternity was about. So when I was raised up as a Mason, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to finally learn what all these great secrets are. Well, it doesn't quite work out like that. Um, (laughs) uh, You have to remember the average age of a Mason today is pushing 70. Uh, It's late 60s to, you know, early 70s. And the life expectancy is somewhere in the neighborhood of around 78, you know, for a man. And they're, you know, a generation or so ahead of me in a lot of cases. And they, they're they great men. They mean well. But they're entrenched in their attitudes, beliefs, and values. Um, they, they're not very flexible in changing. 
uh, and they don't like questions. So when someone like myself comes along, I'm considered a heretic. I'm not <laughs> afraid to ask questions, you know, and that that scares people because a lot of times they don't have the answers, but they're afraid to say or have the courage to say, I just don't know, you know, or offer a suggestion on where to go look for an answer. So what I, I came up against was a lot of these older guys, and again, they're great men, uh, and they mean well, their point of reference would be the Bible. Okay. <laughs> so they're trying to give me these biblical quotations, <laughs> and it, it just didn't quite work. And when that didn't work, they tried to dazzle me with dance steps, of, you know, using some existentialist philosophical crank, you know that they really didn't understand. So they're just trying to BS me. And it's all because they just didn't really know the answers. Um, and as a result, if you go back and you look 150 years ago, uh, folks, believe it or not, were very more, uh, much more so occult oriented. They knew a whole lot more about it. And this is, you can see this in, in the writings that were out there. Uh, and if you go back to like 1850 up into uh, the late 1940s, 1950s, you'll see there's quite a bit of occultist and esoterica uh, material that is out there. And it's it's pretty good. But if you look what's available today or that's been published over the course of the last 75 years, roughly, uh, the quality and the quantity just is not there. Um, it really is. And I hate to say that. So that was the issue. And my thoughts were, I've got all these questions. I was hoping that my brothers in the fraternity would help, you know, answer some of them. But unfortunately, they just didn't have the knowledge, the skill or the ability to do that. So I had to embark on this. And I'll just say quixotic quest, uh, <laughs> you know, chasing windmills and search for for answers. And like Don Quixote, a lot of times I felt that I was just riding an ass. So, <laughs> you know, that's just the nature of the beast. Um, when it came to this book over the course of over 20 years, you know, as a Mason, you know, I had, had all these questions. I had acquired a lot of knowledge. And I felt that if I had these questions, you had the same questions. The difference being is I put in a lot of time and effort researching to find where these answers might reside. Really, it was a, a quest for truth. You know, I you cannot accept what is is given to you in a classroom or what some alleged authority figure may say. You have to be able to go out on your own, perform your own investigations, and arrive at your own informed opinions based on what you have learned, not what someone has told you. And that is really the important, probably the most important aspect of being a heretic. So... Yeah, my Masonic brothers, they got a little bit frustrated with me <laughs> because they didn't have answers. I had all these questions. And 
they they would tell me, oh, it's in the ritual. It's in the lectures. Everything you need to know is right there. But they couldn't, they themselves couldn't explain it. So again, it came back to, I had questions, you've got questions, and I felt that it was incumbent upon me to share that knowledge. So perhaps, you know, if I'm able to reduce the amount of time that you need to investigate a question, you can apply it to another question and hopefully move things a little bit further down the path esoterically. Indeed. And I do relate to your journey. Again, your book brought a lot of insight to me and it's full of graphs and designs. I mean, you really break it down like a good hermetic philosopher, but I was the same way years ago. I started joining this Gnostic church and we would do the, the rituals, you know, the, the, the French Gnostic church and all that. And I'd ask questions. Well, what does it mean? What's this stuff? And I, I never got the answer. I felt nothing was changing and kind of like you, I, once I got into shamanism, which I contend that that's what hermeticism and Gnosticism is, ancient Egyptian shamanism, going out to nature, doing my own investigation, experiencing things, uh, that's when it all started clicking. So I do agree with you on that. Um, so you wrote the book. Where do you want to start? It seems, uh, as Van says, everybody wants to know what the Philosopher's Stone. Do you want to start there, or do you want to start when, if people ask you about the unified field? Where would you like to start, Richard? Well, I I think the core of it, as I, I have it laid out in the book, is bell, book, and candle. Um, and those actually parallel the three degrees in masonry uh, and many other uh, orders, not just hermetic. Uh, the Eastern uh, thought follows that same path. Yeah. So as I laid it out in the book, in the bell, actually bell, book, and candle, and I'm not talking about this romantic comedy with uh, <laughs> Jack Lemon and Kim Novak back yeah, in yeah. 59 or something like that with the cat. Uh, right, right. Tuckett, I believe his name was. Um, yeah, it's a cute movie. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's about modern witches, but this isn't what that it's about. Bell, Book, and Candle is actually a very, very old phrase. Um, and it would can be considered uh, paganism along that line. Um, and Ultimately, it, it's it's still used today. It's uh, in a lot of practices because we ring the bell when we're beginning a ritual. We open the book, you know, to you know look at what we're actually going to be uh, performing, and then we light the candle to provide some illumination, remove bad juju, all that kind of good stuff, right? So, within modern pagan practices we ring the bell we open the book we light the candle when we get done with that ritual we ring the bell we close the book and extinguish the candle now the catholic church jumped on board with that believe it or not and folks don't realize that regardless of what the church might say it's practicing 
high magic. It is. Bottom line, stuff that's been handed down for thousands of years, going all the way back to Mesopotamia, Sumer, Egypt, all those places. It's the same thing. It's a form of high magic. So when the Catholic Church encountered somebody like myself, it said, <laughs> oh, you know, point the finger, you're a heretic. You know, we're not going to have anything more to do with you because you ask too many questions. Everything you need to know is in the liturgy and it's in the ritual. <laughs> right, right. You know, there you that's, go. That's the dogmatic statement that you get. So they will excommunicate a heretic. And as part of the church's ritual to do that, they would invoke bell, book, and candle. In other words, they would ring the bell. They would close the book on you and extinguish the candle and saying, we're done with you. So that that's one of them. But within uh, masonry and other esoteric or occult orders, uh, it that's not the intent or the meaning of it. Um, when we ring the bell, we're answering a call as in an initiate. Okay, when you hear a bell ring today, it's, oh, it's got my attention. I'm supposed to pay attention to something. And that's what it's doing. As an initiate, you know, you're paying attention and you're you're beginning down that path. And as you go down that path, you begin acquiring knowledge. And that's where the second portion of my book comes in. And it's titled The Book. Because... As we're progressing on this path, we open not just one book and read one book, but we open and read many, many, many books. We're climbing the mountain of knowledge. Mm -hmm. That's our quest. And within masonry, that would be the second degree, the fellow craft. They refer to it as laboring in the quarries, uh, but it's actually in, in the older orders, Climbing that mountain of knowledge. And it's a lot of work. It's a labor of love. But then at some point, you know, we've kind of moved beyond that. Um, we've ascended the mountain and we've got all this knowledge, but we're not done. We're searching for the flower of wisdom. Okay. These are the things that are addressed in the third portion of the book, searching for that flower of wisdom. And this is where we have a discussion of the shamanic aspects of it uh, with my teacher, Charles. Um, and I, I felt that it was just very apropos because as, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, whether we're looking at, Hermeticism, Western occultism. We're looking at Eastern uh, mysticism, Vedic science. Uh, we're, we're looking at nature-based shamanism. They're all essentially the same thing. At the core of all of them, of each and every one of them, including you know the religious ideas that are out there today, is love. What is love? Love is something that, you know, it's, you can say it's an emotion, 
but we can exemplify love through charity. And that's why you hear references in all of the orders, all of the religions to love and charity, because charity is love in action. Charity is something that you do for your fellow man, whomever he may be, without the expectation of any acknowledgement, uh, reward, or benefit. You do it because it needs to be done because it's the right thing. And that is the foundation of everything that we should be striving to live by. So we need to look at living by example in that regard, not leading by example. There's a big difference. So, you know, that's really, you know, where I, I started with this book. In the beginning, we're answering the call, we're ringing the bell. There is a historical foundation that's offered. The second section is entitled The Book, where we're acquiring this knowledge. And it's a discussion of the operative mechanics of the Philosopher's Stone as a transformational process. And within that process, we're also looking at, you know, how does meditation work? And meditation, you know, for some folks, especially in the area that I live, is a scary word because they <laughs> don't really understand what it means. But meditation is, uh, it would equate to prayer. And really, you know, when we're looking at, at this transformation process, it's a vehicle for becoming better than we once were so that we can have uh, more meaningful conversations with deity, with God, whatever you, moniker you choose to use, so that when our mortal time expires, we are comfortable in knowing that hopefully we'll be in a better place. And that's really the bottom line of it. So as we transition from all these operative mechanics from the perspective of a uh, 16th century alchemist, we're transitioning from there to a contemporary Native American shaman who through life lessons that are imparted using nature, and it, it seems counterintuitive, but it really isn't. It fits perfectly. Right, yeah. Uh, because that's where we learn about our existence, you know, about, you know, our creation, about existence, about death and rebirth, because that is a universal cycle. It's not just a cycle within nature here on Earth. It's a universal cycle. And that's what Hermetics tries to teach us when we're looking at the seven universal principles or laws. You know, and how does it begin? Often, you know, you'll see at the very top of the list is mentalism, where the all is part of everything and everything is part of the all. Um, and then we can go on down from there. Uh, but that's the, the basis, the premise of the book from which it operates. It was written because I had questions that and you have questions that needed to be answered. And then I had to come up with, well, how could I convey this knowledge 
how can I communicate these ideas uh, to people that have questions in a way that they can understand it? And more importantly, Miguel, in a way that they can use in their daily lives. I have to provide those examples. I have to live by example in, in doing that. And my hope is that perhaps this book, even though it's small, uh, will set a standard for others to follow. I think it does, uh, Richard. Uh, it's got everything, the historical, the practical. Again, you have plenty of graphs on the alchemical process, the symbolism. But again, it's very useful. It gets to the heart of it. It reminds me of uh, there was a, a quote that I love by Bob Thurman. He's actually Uma Thurman's father, but he's a Buddhist master. And once they ask him what's enlightenment, he said, oh, that's easy, being useful. Once you're useful to others, you are in the zone. You're there. That's simple as that. Exactly. You know, the phrase I use, you know, because I hear it all the time and I'm sure you do as well. You know, well, what is our purpose? Right. Our purpose is to live. That's why we are here for no other reason. So, you know, if we're going to live, that means that for whatever deity that you have an affinity for, you should be the best live as the best person that you can be. And what does that mean? That means that you should create some sense of awareness. You should be educating. You should be inspiring. You should be motivating other people to be the best that they can be by living by example. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Couldn't have said it better. Yeah. And let me quote this part, which I love because uh, there's so much good stuff in your book. Uh, you say about the philosopher's stone. Some people are probably thinking, no, no, I want immortality. I want wealth. There's got to be something else. But as you write, from a hermetic perspective, it can be argued that finding the philosopher's stone represents attainment of the all, of achieving enlightenment. Reflecting upon the universal principle of the mental, the all is a universal universal living mind. A mind is made up of feminine negative energy blended with masculine positive energy, grounded by temper, decision, and action. Therefore, the all is emotion, thought, and decision of the mind translated into energy as action by the body. The all is both the individual, microcosmic, and collective. My, macrocosmic mind and body so that there that pretty much says it all if people are still wondering about alchemy and hermeticism it's what you just said but in a hermetic way <laughs> yeah and as you've mentioned you know it's not a very thick book it's 192 pages so in the broader scheme of of published materials it, it's not very large but it has a tremendous amount of material in it. It's concentrated, um, very concentrated. And I, I've had some very knowledgeable friends 
that have gone back and have read it, you know, three and four times and say, every time I've read through it and finding something new, you know, because it's just got that much material in it. And the other thing in concert with that, it's a matter of perspective. And as you become a more enlightened being, as you're moving further down the path, um, you become aware of more things. So, you know, again, this is intended to be a reference that you can go back to time and time again. Not just, oh, a summer read at the beach where I'm just going to go <laughs> through it real quick, you know, see what the romantic aspects are of it and toss it in the can. Um, now, this is something that, you know, I if you're like me, I will go through and uh, do a, a read first and then I'll come back and I'll dog ear and I'll highlight, make little notes out on the side, you know. And again, use it for a reference because it will help you for many years to come. I would agree. I mean, you've got everything. For example, what I caught my eye and everybody's different, but like how you talk about the caduceus is a spine and it goes up into enlightenment. And then you talk about the sympathetic, parasympathetic mind and how it can make it work. And again, that's for me what caught me because I've been so much into Hermes as my deity the last two years or so. But you've got uh, everything, the chakras, you compare those to the the pillars of Freemasonry. I mean, you've got it all. You've got it all in this book. And for people who want all the sacred geometry, oblong, square, you also provide that. So there's something for everybody in this book who's searching. Yeah, well, I'm glad you touched on that, Miguel. Um, because if you're looking at it from a hermetic perspective, from the point of Hermes Caduceus, when you have those twin serpents uh, going up the staff, okay, uh, they represent your sympathetic and parasympathetic nerves. The staff itself represents your uh, spinal ganglia. And then they get up there to the wings. And the wings are the left and right hemispheres of your mind. And the little ball at the top of the staff would be your essentially, you know, your third eye, uh, your point of enlightenment. Um, but what I want to touch on that, what folks seem to miss a lot, is that as the serpents are intertwined going up that staff, where they intersect on the staff, coincidentally intersect at the same points that we have nerves coming out from our spinal column to different organs within the body, and we refer to those as uh, chakra points, or the Kundalini. But what's really cool is when you're looking at the serpents, one serpent can represent, for example, the seven universal laws. Okay. The other serpent represents the seven liberal arts and sciences. And I think I emailed you uh, uh, something this morning right. that if you go back and you look at the slides on there, you'll see how there's this crossover between the universal laws, the hermetic principles, as well as the seven liberal arts and sciences. They're, they appear to be separate, but they're actually interwoven as part of the same thing. And I felt that to be pretty profound. And it was just kind of like a wow moment. And the other thing that you see on, on that, Caduceus, 
is that center pole that uh, would represent the third pillar in masonry uh, or would represent the spinal ganglia. It also represents the, uh, the lightning flash in Kabbalistic thought. But instead of the zigzag that you see on the tree of life that the lightning flash follows, in this regard, it's actually just a straight line path. And it goes just as it should in uh, nature. Electricity goes from the ground to the sky. And that's how this flash goes. Because if we're grounded with our root chakra, okay? Our coccyx is on the ground as we're meditating, okay? That's where this energy is emanating from. And it, it just comes up and it pulses through the five segments of our spinal column, the five pillars of masonry, up to our minds, you know. And then if we're properly aligned, you know, in peace, unity, and harmony, uh, four-part harmony of mind, body, uh, spirit, and soul, that's where you get this resonation, this four-part harmony, perfect harmony. And that's where we're able to attain this idea of enlightenment, because at that point in time, we just really feel good about ourselves. We are very much in tune with the universe and everything that's and aware of everything that's going on around us. So that's what meditation will help us do. It helps with our alignment. And I, I get into that pretty deeply, which if you want, we can talk on that a little bit later. Sure, I would love to, because, yeah, it's a central part of your book. But first, uh, let us bring Vance. Vance, what do you think, or do you have any questions? Uh, Understanding, since I read the book, you haven't, understanding what uh, Rich is trying to say? Yeah, I'm getting a a sense of it. I was wondering, Richard, of course, you've heard of the perennial philosophy. Um, Is this all related to that, the uh, the nature of being and, uh, you know, all the seemingly individual beings actually being one being and so forth? Well, yes. I mean, that that comes back to the principle of mentalisms where, you know, the all is part of everything and everything is part of the all. Um, And the thing about enlightenment is this becoming one with the universe. Uh, and that's actually what happens uh, when we become one with the universe. I mean, we do become one with everything, and everything becomes part of us as well. So is that the basis for you know people being motivated to be charitable? I mean, there are probably a lot of people that are charitable because of circumstances, and it's not their idea. Like even, I suppose, people in masonry uh, join, and you know, the, the organization is involved in charitable uh, actions and so they kind of go along but is there a difference between just going along with what's going on around you and actually being personally inspired to be charitable well i'll put it to you this way vance whether you are a mason or a member of another fraternity or another uh esoteric or occult order you first become a member of that in your heart. Our heart is the basis for the tree of life. It's the red stone of the philosopher's stone. 
Um, and the circulatory system in the heart are the first to form with in any living being because it pumps the blood, it pumps the nutrients, the oxygen throughout that being. And until that's established, the brain or the mind cannot form. And when you're looking at the circular uh, circulatory system, it does indeed look as though it is a tree with many, many roots. The white stone would be our mind. Um, and our mind, again, would include the central nervous system. And it too, when you look at it, uh, looks like it's a tree. And it would be the tree of knowledge. So our heart refers to the tree of life. The mind refers to the tree of knowledge, the tree of good and evil. So to answer your question, you know, are you being charitable because it's in your heart? Or are you being charitable because it's in your mind? It's a matter of perspective. Right, right. When you were relating, you know, the state of masonry these days with the uh, older people getting set in their ways and so forth and not wanting to answer your questions, it makes me think that those people have kind of lost that spark of the heart because they're not relating to you. They're just flipping you off with, I'll go look at the rituals or, <laughs> or do this or that. But, you know, aren't there once in a while, um, you know, master masons or whatever that haven't lost the spirit? that, you know, might help a young person uh, first getting into masonry? Well, they they all will definitely try to help as best they can. But being human, number one, we're fallible. You know, it's just the way it is. Um, and we're mortal. We don't, you know, know everything. The challenge is that, you know, for us being fallible human beings is to admit, you know, our our uh, our faults. That we need to admit that we don't know or understand something to someone that is younger and and asking questions because that person is looking to us for an answer we don't have. And if we give them uh, a wrong answer, a blatantly wrong answer then they're going to lose respect for us. Um, and I think that's part of it. They're, they're trying to maintain their uh, sense of authority, their sense of having respect, being looked up to. It's not, you know, anything to, I think, disrespect a, a younger person that's coming in. Uh it's just being part of hu human humanity. Uh, I'm not quite sure how else to phrase that. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the uh, the Orthodox churches, you know, where they're really more concerned with keeping the institution going, and um, and and they're maintaining the structure and so forth, as opposed to actually teaching people. Well, certainly, you know, and I would agree with that, Vance. Um, you know, anytime you're uh, imbuing uh, dogma into, uh, you know, a, an organization of any kind, um, 
then that you're you're attempting to influence the hearts and minds of the members of the followers um and you know the question really boils down to is you have a few folks at the top of the pyramid what is their intent you know what direction are they do they envision taking this um order or this church or whatever the organization may happen to be you know so you have a few that are are in control uh and that's really what that boils down to so yeah with any organization you're going to find that uh masonry is no different you have a few people at the top of the pyramid that say okay you know this is how we expect you to believe and how we expect you to behave and if you deviate from that you know, just like the church will excommunicate you. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and that's pretty much how it works, regardless of what order or what organization uh, may be involved. Uh, you can't just pin it on one uh, in particular. I oh, agree no. with you because uh, even you're talking about the Catholic church. Uh I used to be a Roman Catholic, go to Mass every Sunday. Okay, what's this? Again, same question. Okay, what's going on? When I became a heretic, studied alchemy, went back to the old Gnostic Valentinians, I was like, oh, wow, the 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 communion is a form of alchemy where I, where I reach apotheosis and I be like Jesus. And suddenly going to Mass was an amazing experience. It still is an amazing experience if I have the heretic mindset. And it's a law, it's a knowledge that's lost. I mean, Pope Athanasius in the third century, one of the fathers of the Christianity said, yeah, Jesus uh, became man so that man may become God. Simple. But like you said, Richard, this stuff gets lost in any organization, which like you said, it's all about enlightenment and unification with God. Absolutely. You know, and I, I'm glad you mentioned that, that aspect of uh, the communion and all that. Because folks tend to look at the Bible as being literal, that it is the word of God. <laughs> um, I'm happy for them that they believe that, but it's so much more. You know, it's not just this moral guidepost. Yes, it certainly functions as that. But layered within it is allegory and metaphor. And to touch on a point that I bet you haven't even thought about, even though you are you work as an alchemist, did you know that the Bible in the New Testament talks about alchemy? Hmm, where? Talks about alchemy. Let us know, because I can't think of it. Huh? It refers to uh, spagyric specifically. Oh, where? Where exactly? Okay. Well, remember good old Herod Antipas? Yes, of course. The, the guy that arrested John the Baptist. Yeah, Threw him yeah. in jail, right? And it's his birthday. And his beautiful stepdaughter, Salome, decides that, okay, for a birthday present, I'll, I'll do this dance for him that he's asked me to do. But she puts a contingent on there. It's content. She'll do it contingent on whether or not he will give her the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. Right, right. Am I right? 
Yeah. And then after that, it begins going into the process of Jesus and his teachings and his ultimate crucifixion. Am I correct? Correct, yes. Now, since you're familiar with alchemy and spagyrics, what is the first step in that process? Oh, God, I'm drawing a blank. What is it? Creation of a deadhead. Oh, yeah. Okay. So when I tell you there's a deadhead on a silver platter, what does it mean? <laughs> Jerry Garcia. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, I resemble that remark. But anyway, <laughs> uh, actually, it's the beginning of an alchemical process under a full moon. A silver platter symbolizes a full moon. So you have a deadhead, the beginning of the alchemical process, during a full moon. And it proceeds up through Jesus' crucifixion. And what happens when Jesus is crucified? He's transformed. transformed. Yes. That, my friends, is an alchemical process. Uh, so, of course, we can connect it, connect it to Baphomet and the Knights Templar, who perhaps had the head of John the Baptist. So they were probably playing around with those same energies, huh? So Salome is the alchemist here. <laughs> she started the process. <laughs> Hot chicks get all the all the results. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's but, fascinating. Uh, yeah, I could tell you a whole lot about the Templars, but that's a subject for, you know, a, a, another another interview. Um, it wasn't the head of John the Baptist that they were worshiping. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a little spoiler alert here. Because I've got a couple other books in the works. Spoiler alert. It wasn't the head of John the Baptist. It was the head of Hugh DePays. Oh, yeah. That would make sense. Yes. I think, yeah. You, actually, you wrote me an email telling me about your research. Especially Hugh DePays was a messiah. Mm -hmm. They would have every reason to worship it. That is true. That is true. I think that's a good... Uh, a good theory. So we certainly look forward to uh, your next book and talking to you about it. But let's let's come back because, uh, again, this is so important. And again, it's something you drive through or keep uh, mentioning in your book, and that is meditation. And, uh, for example, you write, many people wrongly assume that the brain's main purpose is in thinking and in storing information. But the brain <laughs> does much more than that. Only 12.5% of our brain's energy is used for thought. And, uh, you know, for example, you talk about uh, uh, meditation is one of the essential ways of bringing in the polarities, the left, the right brain, the two pillars in masonry and all that. So meditation is extremely important, right? And how do we demystify it for people? I mean, again, like you said, people, the thought of somebody being alone with, with their own thoughts scares the hell out of most Westerners because we really don't want to be with our own thoughts. That's sometimes the last thing we want to do. We're trying to escape our thoughts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the question is, okay, how, how, what is meditation? Right. right. Um, meditation again, you know, it, it's a uh, synonym for prayer, 
for all intent and purpose. Um, it's a way that we can improve our communication, our rapport with deity, whomever he or she may be. Okay. And that's the whole idea. It's about becoming better than we once were. So that's why we meditate. That's why we pray. And folks don't realize that when we're praying, we're actually chanting. It's, you know, a lot of, a lot of times. Uh, sometimes it's very recognizable. Other times it's a little bit more subtle. So how, how does this all work? Well, our body is an electrical system. Um, and for an electrical system to work, uh, think of the electrical system in your house. When you go downstairs to the basement to your breaker box, you've got all these wires coming into these circuit breakers. Right. And it can be a nightmare. <laughs> but what you're looking at primarily are three wires. You're looking at a white wire, a black wire, and a green wire or a bare copper wire. Well, your black wire believe it or not, is your hot wire. That would be positive. That would be your masculine aspects of it. It, In hermetic terms, that's where you find your, your structure. And that comes up our, our spine into our brain. And for men, it's why we're referred to as left brain, because that would be a sympathetic nerve. Our parasympathetic nerves would be the uh, white wire, okay? It has positive uh, attributes, but what its purpose is, is to bring everything back to ground, okay? So it's not really negative, but we can refer to it as that, even though it's uh, a misnomer. So we have our positive and our negative. The green wire is our ground, or the bare copper wire is our ground wire. Everything must return to ground, even us when we die. But for an electrical system to operate, it must be grounded. And we can think about it in terms of a flashlight. When you have this cylindrical tube for a flashlight, you can put a couple of D-cell batteries in there. And you screw this cap on the bottom of it that has this little spring. And that is your ground because the negative is touching on that spring. So you have a negative on for your ground, a positive at the top that touches on the negative of the battery above it in a series going up, you know, however many batteries you've got. And at the upper, top of the uppermost battery is where you make contact with this little light bulb. And when you push the switch, if the batteries are good, if the system is properly grounded, if it's all hooked up correctly, if the filaments are, are good in the bulb, the light will come on. It's illuminating. Okay? It's enlightening the area. And that's pretty much how it works. So within our body... Generally speaking, we say that the left side is masculine, 
And in masonry, that would be the pillar of Boaz, the pillar of strength. The right side would be the pillar of beauty. That would be Jacob. And that's feminine in its aspects. It's the parasympathetic nerves. It's much more fluid. It's not as structured. Um, it returns everything back to ground. Women do that. <laughs> they tend to keep us grounded. That's why they're uh -huh. here. Okay. That comes back into your principles of gender and polarity. Okay. Uh, and then up at the top, or the batteries themselves, the center poles of the batteries, okay, would be the same as the vertebral ganglia in our spinal column that goes from the base of our neck, the cervical area, all the way down through those five pillars, those five sections of our back, and those chakras or the kundalini to the root chakra, which is at our coccyx, when we're sitting on the ground meditating, we're grounded and we're able to begin harmonizing. Okay, and how do we harmonize, um, unify our system? And that's where the mantra comes in. And for any of, of you that have, have done meditation, there's a, a gazillion mantras out there. Okay, you can't just say, oh, oh, there's just one mantra. <laughs> it depends on, on really what you want to do. So when we begin to chant our mantra, what that does is, again, this is in line with hermetic principles. It creates vibration. The vibration begins in our throat, in its guttural. Okay, as Masons would refer to it, it begins in our throat, it goes down into our breast. And from our breast, as we're sitting cross legged, it will extend out to our arms and our hands, which are usually resting on our knees and our feet. So, those in Masonry are the four points of our entry guttural, pectoral, manual. And fetal. But the thing is, for it to work, for that vibration to work, we have to be grounded. In other words, sitting our ass on the ground. <laughs> okay. Um, and if we're sitting on a pillow or a foam mat, we're being insulated. Insulation prevents the conduction of electricity. So you can be sitting there happy as you want but you're not getting proper conductivity from Mother Earth, from the ground itself, for you to begin aligning. Now, that's one route that the vibration travels. The other route the vibration travels is when you begin chanting that vibration, it travels up into your uh, audio areas. You can actually hear it as well as feel it in your ears, okay? And then you could also feel it and hear it in your mind. So if you are using the correct mantra for whatever it is you intend to do, you begin this vibration will align your mind and your body and your spirit. 
because the spirit is the glue that holds your mind and body together. And if you can get those aligned and are able to attain three-part harmony and push it a little bit further with your resonance and tune it up a little bit and get it in perfect four-part harmony, then your soul begins to resonate. And once that happens, then this light in your mind begins to go off. And that's where our third eye is located. Our mind is like a, a computer. And within any computer on, on the motherboard, uh, you have a bunch of circuits that control things. And within our mind, you know, um, we have this circuit is called a servo mechanism, okay, that is a harmonic generator. And when I speak about the third eye, folks will jump on there and say, oh, yeah, I know what the third eye is. That's our pineal gland, right? Of course. Well, yeah, kind of, sort of, but not really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> The third eye consists of the pineal gland, the pituitary gland, and the thalamus. And to relate that to an, electrical, an electronic circuit, it would be like having a resistor, an inductor, and a capacitor. They work together to control the circuit. That's what a harmonic generator does. Um, it, it provides balance, equilibrium. And that's what we're really trying to do. So what is the third eye really? Well, it's the thalamus, pituitary gland, the pineal gland. In other words, it's emotion, thought, and decision. That's, that's what's going on up here. And then it all goes back down through our central nervous system, you know, um, what we're trying to do is get that to align with our our mind and our body, open up that third line, uh, third eye, so that it's resonating, it's vibrating in harmony with our mind, our body, and our spirit. And that's you know when we get that alignment, that's when we feel this sense of euphoria, you know this this rush, and. Things aren't about us as individuals anymore when that happens. We have moved well beyond ourselves as a person. We've become what they refer to, again, is the mentalism, the all. The all is part of everything, and everything is part of the all. We realize that we are a, a microcosm within the macrocosm of the universe and really at its core we're no more significant than the microbe on an anthill in the middle of the cargo and that's where our, we begin to realize hey life isn't about me life is about so much more that you can't even begin to try to embrace it and describe it you know, it, it's finally coming to terms with, you know, unity, you know, and harmony with the universe as a whole. You know, again, it, it's not just about us. It's not just about us and our family or our friends or our colleagues. It's about the whole of life. You know, it's about 
our relationship with other life forms, whether it's plants and animals on this earth, uh, you know, uh, other organisms, because essentially the earth is nothing more than an organism itself, um, you know, and, and everything that's going on way out beyond us. And really, is it just within our perspective of a universe? Or does it transcend dimension and multiverses and many worlds? You know, so, you know, if you go back and you've watched the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, you know, of course, yeah. uh, where Dave at the end, you know, he becomes this uh, a star child, you know, and that's what he says. It's very scary, but it's very beautiful. It's amazing. And that's all you see is kind of like the alchemical child. He, you see him in an embryonic state, sucking his thumb. And then, you know, he he blossoms from there and grows. So that's that's my take on it for what it's worth. Do you want to share? I don't think you have a website. Just tell people, go buy the book at the usual suspects or... What do you want to oh, say? Yeah, the usual suspects. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. a, that's a good way to phrase it. <laughs> um, I actually do have a website. Oh, okay. um, yeah. And it's called the Stoned Templar. Yes, I said that. Stoned Templar.com. <laughs> or you can visit my author page, which is uh, if you go on Facebook and do a search, it's R E Fretz. And I should pop right up. All right. I've put it all up. And as always, I will have it in the show notes for the audience. Uh, but we are at the end. Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company on this journey to find the Philosopher's Stone. Oh, you bet. Well, I got to run off to my Illuminati meeting now. <laughs> <laughs> you got to take over the world. Yeah, yeah. You're enlightened. Now it's time to take over the world. There you go. Well, say hi to Charles Schwab or whoever else, whoever the villain is these days for world domination yeah it's black rock group you know yeah exactly exactly well awesome well uh richard really enjoyed this interview uh again highly recommend your book thanks for your time and we look forward uh for our next chat to discuss uh the knights templar and uh, other sundries thank you well thank you so much for this opportunity miguel i really enjoyed it and if your audience has questions uh, if you go to my website or to my Facebook page, uh, you can send me a message. And I, I always enjoy hearing, you know, the uh, thoughts and ideas of our listenership. Very cool. Well, you heard it here. And uh, yeah, again, thanks, Richard. And uh, we shall talk soon. And there you have it, you shining, crazy diamonds. Richard getting us Gnosis Stone with the Philosopher's Stone. In our second part, Richard will provide the structures of the mind and how to make them work right. We'll get into alchemy concepts and the truth of turning lead to gold. And what more can we learn from the dictum, as above, so below. Richard will take us on a transcendent quest on the wisdom of the snake, and the higher forms of shamanism, and much more. So please become a member for the full, yes, Philosopher's Stone. 
only $6.99 a month for AB Prime or $4.99 a Red Circle or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You'll get access to my private Facebook group and Discord channel for AB Prime members and Patreons. If you find value in this content, please help grow this Red Pill Cafeteria. Your help can be in the form of a one-time donation on Stripe or the U.S. Mail or even crypto. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to leave a tip or you can tip on any YouTube show. There's always the merch store and an Amazon wish list. And consider the Finding Hermes program where we have monthly exclusive meetings and presentations with many past guests hanging out there for some high-octane gnosis. I also do have a one-on-one tier if you want to talk every month about Gnosticism or other heresies, or discuss healing modalities or addiction recovery. If you need any help with these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself your true self here in the desert of the real hello and goodbye as always